Are you tired of being broke? Do you struggle with debt? Are you ready for a change? If so, you found the right place. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. My name is Eric, and I invite you to join me and my co-hosts, Keith and Nick, as we reveal the truth about how to succeed financially. Whether you're just beginning your journey or have many miles behind you, we're here to help. If you would like to follow or contact us, visit propersense.com. What's up, everybody? We're back with another episode of the Proper Sense Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Eric. Eric, what's up, man? Not much. Recording right before uh, Fourth of July weekend. Any plans, Nick? They actually banned fireworks where I'm at, and I live in Camas, Washington, as our listeners might know. They banned fireworks all around us because it's been hotter than the devil's asshole and everything's dry. And the uh, local authorities are saying uh, alcohol, booze, fire, fireworks don't mix because we'll start a uh, inferno. So I heard that that ban actually just came down. So you guys have had all the firework stands up, all of the small businesses that do that. And then the caveat to it is they're not allowed to store those fireworks till next year because they're considered explosives. So what happened? Is that a countywide thing, a statewide thing? What was the deal? It started as a, I think the city of Vancouver was the first city to ban fireworks last year. And then due to the weather, like Washougal, Camas, Portland now, several other cities have followed suit just because they don't want to be liable. And from a uh, a first responder standpoint, I mean, they would just be stretched trying to put out fires and all that. So it's, it's, it's been tough because not many people know this, but I, I think the biggest fireworks show west of the Mississippi has been in Vancouver, Washington for like the last 40 years. So fireworks are, are baked into the DNA here. So this is actually a big deal. And, you know, for me personally, every year as a kid, my dad would take us to the fireworks stand. We'd load up on fireworks. We'd blow them off on 4th of July. Same thing with my kids. And now it's it's a complete swing to the other way. So I think it's affecting a lot of people's mood and just the overall feeling around the 4th. It really doesn't feel like it's a 4th of July weekend. Yeah, I hear that. I, I share those those memories. We used to do that all the time growing up in Washington, um, uh, just south of Seattle. That was Fireworks were a big deal. And I remember the first year that that, I don't know if it was the county, the city, I was a little too young to know, but the first year when they put the fireworks ban in that area, we had all of our friends over and we'd hide in our garage and we had a tube or a, a piece of plywood back before they were $90 a piece and we would load it up throw the garage door open slide it out on the front or on the driveway launch off a bunch of fireworks look at them and then we'd drag the whole thing back in and close the garage and listen to the police go by as they were patrolling so we gave it one more solid year after the ban probably wasn't a smart move but hey when you're a kid you just want to see the fireworks that's some aggressive gamesmanship and you have to applaud that I, I haven't thought about doing that, uh, but I for damn sure would piss off my neighbors uh, and probably start a fire. So I'm not going to do that. Probably a wise move. In this day and age, there's always a neighbor that's going to rat you out. So you want to you want to avoid that. Okay, so today, what are we going to be talking about? We're talking about 
sweating the big stuff or not sweating the small stuff. That's going to be the primary topic. But before we started recording, you and I got into a little bit of a debate, and I'd like to bring that in for our listeners, and and I'll take my position, you take your position, and then we'll duke it out on the air after we after we've already done this. So why don't you set it up and tell me the example you were talking about and then we'll hash it out. So my, my whole premise is there's a lot of personal finance experts that obsess the small stuff. Like you shouldn't buy a Starbucks latte because it's gonna take you to insolvency or, or it's gonna break your budget. It's gonna make sure that you can never retire. And I just think all that's bullshit. I think people should sweat the big stuff, get the big stuff right. And the example that I use that Eric was disgusted by, and this isn't to slander anybody, but we talked about Burger King Man. And Burger King Man makes minimum wage, but Burger King Man is on top of his personal finance game. He's got his budget dialed, he's building an emergency fund, he's saving for retirement, but his wealth building is in slow motion just because there's a ceiling on his wages. Eric is saying that he would rather take Burger King Man. I countered Eric and said, I would rather take someone, let's say over the last five or six years that has super focused on earning more, has invested in their career, maybe they started a side hustle, maybe they're starting to earn some passive income. But the counter to that is that person who's making all this money is terrible at personal finance. They spend they spend beyond their means. They have no understanding of a budget. They have uh, no emergency fund. They live paycheck to paycheck. And my premise is you can condition that person to to refine and optimize their their personal finance habits. And Eric's position is he would rather take Burger King Man because those personal finance habits that Burger King Man has dialed in are really tough to teach. Well, my point of it was that Burger King man, all he needs to do is increase his earning potential, which is hard in and of itself. And we'll get into those sorts of things. But someone in that position, even if that's the career path that this person wants, even if that's the ambition that they have, their ability to keep track of their own money live below their means, they have the potential. It might not be wealth in a relative sense to other people, but they can build wealth. Even if they never make above minimum wage, if they live below that wage and are comfortable and are happy at that level, they have the ability to build that cushion. My argument against, we'll call it, you know, mortgage broker person with a with an environment that you can make a ton of money, but then you can also have some some uh, some down periods. My, my struggle with that side of things is that that person that lives high on the hog, that lives at the edge, that lives at the, the, the corner of how much money they make, all it takes is for the wind to blow a little hard, have some bad months, bad quarters, bad years, lose a job, and now you've got an entire person, maybe family, spouse, kids, the whole thing that are used to this way of living, and moving backwards is way more difficult than moving forwards. And so I would always like to build, or personally, I like to build from a position of strength, build the foundation first, and then move forward, rather than going out and trying to, you know, swing for the fence, and then just hope that I can continue to out-earn my horrible spending habits. So I take Burger King Man. And, and let me just say this. I, I love Burger King Man. I love Burger King Woman. I love going to Burger King and getting a Whopper with cheese, meat, cheese, and bun. 
It's still, it's still, in my opinion, the best fast food burger out there. Well, no, let's, if we're, if we're only counting the majors, because you start throwing in your In-N-Out and uh, Chick-fil-A's, you're in a whole different ballgame at that point. So this is a, this is a, this is a sidecar, but, uh, so In-N-Out, I've been there one time. This might be a hot take. I, I just don't get the whole fervor over it. Like, I'm, I'm never waiting in line an hour for an In-N-Out burger. Like, there's a new In-N-Out in Kaiser, Oregon, which is like Salem. People get there at like 7 a.m. and wait for three hours for a freaking burger. That, that's just stupid to me. That has to do with where you guys are. You know, it's kind of like Chick-fil-A. I remember the first one went in in, I think it was Issaquah, Washington. And there'd be lot, they, had to, they had to actually pay the police department to have people on staff to direct traffic. That's because it's a novelty. Everyone's been to California or Arizona or these other states and had them and they liked them. And so then when they come in and you only have one in an out burger, you know, where I live, I've got three Chick-fil-A's that I could hit with a rock from my house and two in and out burgers. So, you know, it kind of just depends on where you're at because we don't run into that issue at all down here. It's just a reasonably good fast food burger. So back to the topic at hand, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer there, there's nuance in everything. Things are seldom black and white. And that's probably the case with Burger King Man and, and, and Mortgage Broker Man. So the truth lies somewhere in between. So today we're going to outline the small things that some gurus say will kill you, but they really won't. So we're going to use some examples of, of what some of those things are. And then the big things that people should focus on to maximize their earnings potential, to give themselves a better probability, a higher probability of a favorable outcome. So Eric, what, what are some of the things that won't kill you, but some people say could kill you? I've got a few here, but I'm going to start off with one that might be a little bit outside of what people would expect. And I'm going to lead off talking about your thermostat in your house. We've all known those people that are so uptight about the temperature in their house, whether it always needs to be too hot or it needs to be too cold in a manner to save money. And anybody who grew up, it's usually a dad. You know, dads are the ones that, that are yelling at you, turn the lights off, turn the thermostat down, all of that, all of that business. And, and my argument to that is if you need to save the 20 to $30 a month to, but you have to live in an environment that is uncomfortable all the time. You're living in the wrong house, so you're doing it wrong. I just, I don't believe that you should have to subject yourself to an uncomfortable environment in the name of saving less than 50 bucks a month. I think it's ridiculous. Well, just a, a comment on that. So I'm, I'm that dad. I actually, this is going to sound like I'm a lunatic, but I tax my, my daughters a dollar each if they leave chocolate milk out and it rots or if they leave lights on because... It, it just pisses me off. It probably stems from something my dad told me when I was a kid, but I, I just can't stand milk being left out, food being left out. I can't stand walking into a room that no one's been in for five hours and the lights are on. That, that just tilts me to no end. You can do what my dad did because we always left the, the, light in the, bathroom, or the light and the fan on in our bathroom growing up. So he just took the, the switches out and put a timer on it so it could only ever stay on for 30 minutes at a time. So pro tip for you. So the, the big one that, that people lip off about, and it's more of clickbait than anything, is buying the daily latte. Eric said, David Bach, I've never read that book. I've never even heard of that man. But he, he basically says, if you buy the daily latte, then you're a piece of shit and you're going to be doomed to fail. And I countered with, well, what if that latte 
puts you in a good mood? What if it puts you in a good place? What if you unleash your creative power after sucking down a $9 latte? Like to me, that latte is an investment and it's a good investment. And look, we're not freaking robots. Like no one's saying you should be frugal and not enjoy life. You know, the flip side of that, no one is saying to hurricane off your paycheck and live on the brink of insolvency. Again, there's nuance and do the things that make you happy and watch your spending. That, that's basically my, my freaking premise. Yeah, I agree that it's not going to make or break your long-term success. I think the, the, the book itself that David Bach wrote uh, years ago is called The Latte Factor. And it was basically doing the math and showing that if you just took that money and invested it, blah, 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 you know, for 40 years, this is what it turns into, you know, some odd hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so the narrative is more about being focused. I think the counter to that would be if you're somebody that is struggling and you're living paycheck to paycheck, especially in a lower income type job, and you know the difference of $150 a month would be something dramatic for you if you're still swinging through and buying a, a you know, five, $6 cup of coffee once or twice a day on a regular basis, that could be the difference. However, if you're in a more established career or just you've, you've got the basis covered and you're worried about spending money on coffee, it's not $100 or 150 bucks a month isn't going to be the make it or break it thing. And as you said, if it's something that brings enjoyment and potentially makes you a better human for the rest of us to walk around with, then, then it's probably a good investment. I've, I just thought of one, and I don't know if this is a big one or a small one, but people that buy the most expensive phone and like need a payment plan to pay for that phone, to me, that's the stupidest shit on earth. Like when I go into AT&T, I tell them to give me the worst phone that allows me to get on the internet. That's all I want. And one, it's cheap. Two, I don't want my phone to be super cool because that means my face is gonna be buried in that phone and I won't be talking to people, I won't be social. So I just want a functional phone. For the folks that are buying the $1,800 iPhone, that don't have a dime saved, like that's, that's stupid, dude. Do not do that. So what do you think about coupons or coupons, depending on where you live and how people pronounce it? I think coupons are good. Coupons, that's how I say it. I don't know if that's right or wrong. I think that's fine. But there's one thing that has always confounded me about coupons is people that buy a bunch of shit and use coupons and tell everyone else they're frugal. It's like, look, you're still buying a bunch of stuff that doesn't make you frugal if you use a coupon. I'm sorry. Like we, we used an example of a friend. We're, we're not going to name that person. But, you know, they, they buy stuff off of, uh, you know, they're a, te they're a telemarketer's dream. Online, in-person, TV, infomercials. They'll, they'll buy all this crap and they'll get like a discount code and they'll brag that they're frugal. It's like that's not being frugal. You're still fleecing money, guy. Yeah, I put coupons in the same category as sales. So if you bought something because it's on sale or you bought something because you had a coupon, that wasn't a frugal purchase. If it was something you were going to buy anyways and you got a coupon for it or you bought it when it came on sale, that is being frugal or being smart with your money. So, you know, when you go through the grocery store and you buy all the junk that came in the in the in the mailer that week, just because you saved a dollar on it doesn't mean it was a good purchase. But coming back to the small things, the big things, that's the type of thing that, you know, if you want to do it, that's fine, but use it towards things that you're going to buy anyways. It's not the kind of thing that is going to bring you to financial prosperity because you save $18 a month on your grocery bill. 
Okay, Eric, so what are the big things people get fleeced on? Like the big ticket purchases where you see people making mistakes? I think starting off with the biggest one, probably the, the and it, it's very relevant right now, and we've talked about this topic a handful of times already. I think one of the biggest financial blunders people can make is buying too much house, whether that's the size, whether that's the amount, it's the kind of thing that locks you in and just grounds you to the ground or to the floor. And then you have all of these ancillary costs that come along with it that people oftentimes aren't prepared for, especially first time home buyers. So, you know, when, and we've, we've beat this to death, but when you walk into a realtor's office or into a mortgage broker's office and they tell you, quote, how much you can afford, that's usually not the amount you should be spending unless you have a lot of assets to back it up. But I think that's, you know, I call it kind of the broadsword versus the scalpel. That's the overall topic here. You know, you can you can lop an arm off with a broadsword. You can cut a mole off with a scalpel. And how many scalpels, how many scalpel cuts of moles do you have to make to equal broadsword? So the house is more of the broadsword in this deal. You can make one bad house purchase decision that will erase all of your other small things that you've been working on for your entire life. And there's another unintended consequence of taking on a large mortgage, a large debt burden, is, is you can't really take risks in your career. Like, like you could never quit your corporate job to start a company and not make money for, for two years because you have this fixed monthly payment that's like a, a weight around your neck. And that really resonated with me. And I ended up selling my house uh, to start my business. This was five or, five or six years ago. But that, that was one of my apprehensions to making the jump from a miserable corporate job to my own company was I, I had bought this house with the expectation that I was gonna continue climbing the corporate ladder and staying in the corporate game, uh, well, things change. But you know, it's just one unintended consequence. Your, your, your margin of safety and your capacity to take risk greatly goes down. That's a fantastic point. My wife and I went through the exact same thing when we started our business about 12 years ago. Um, if we had had a huge debt burden, if we had a lot of obligations that was tying up our limited funds at that time, we never would have been able to make the leap. And using Mortgage Broker Man in that same scenario, talking about that, you know, say a big house, expensive cars, all of these things, you have a base level of what your life costs at that point. And so like you're talking about risks, going out and starting a business, doing this. What happens when you get 20 years into a career and you've got a house or a, a lifestyle that requires 150 plus thousand dollars a year to maintain and you decide you hate your career? Well, you're halfway through it. Are you going to go be able to restart because you have? No, you can't because you have these massive burdens that are anchoring you down. So you either need to get rid of everything, downsize, lower your, uh, your living level, which is very difficult for anybody. And that's, that, that's where these kind of things come into play. That's what we're talking about, the broadsword versus the scalpel. If you think one day you want to take these leaps and take these chances and maybe start your own business, you know, setting yourself up with $8,000, $10,000 a month of minimum expenses to maintain your lifestyle is going gonna, is gonna to really inhibit that ability. Okay, so buy a house that you can afford is the, is the story there. The, the other one I want to talk about is student loan debt. And I know this is a big topic of conversation saddling graduates with outsized student loans. Those graduates turn around and have a job that 
doesn't pay them enough to cover their student loan payments or provide an adequate lifestyle, so, so the payoff is not there for the investment. Eric, do you have any opinion on, on the student loan crisis and student loan growth in this country? I could go on for days about that, but I'll, I'll keep it short and I'll talk about something that probably most people don't have to deal with, but there are some that, that, are, that are dealing with this battle. And that's the decision between going to you know, a standard state school and going to one of these expensive private schools. And you know, there are certain industries or certain career paths where that'll make sense. Right. If you want to go be a doctor, if you want to be a lawyer, if you want to be a certain, you know, corporate executive sort of thing, those can give you a leg up. Not only that, but the connections that you can build by getting into one of those schools and paying for that, it it has the potential to pay off. But for a lot of people, it's more of just the prestige of going to one of these schools or their kids. You know, maybe it's not even the kid that really wants to go. It's the parents that want to brag about their kid going there. And that's, that, that, that's something that can just set you up in a huge hole. If you're not wealthy enough to be able to pay for that out of the gate and you got to take on $200,000, $400,000 in debt between the parents and the kids or however you, that mix wants to go in order to send your kid to an expensive school so you can brag to your friends about it, you're going to have a fun time with that hole for the next 20, 30 years paying that off. Well, and I don't know about you, but college for me, I, I didn't learn a damn thing in college. I, I learned how to learn. So I guess that's one thing. But it was basically a social experiment. You know, I, I moved 300 plus miles away to school. First time being on my own. I learned how to be a man. I learned how to take care of things myself. I basically, I basically grew up. All right, let's talk about the next big thing that people get into trouble with. Cars. Right. We, we all we live in a society that's based around the automobile. If you spend any time in Europe, you realize that there are other societies that are not as spread out that, you, you know, you might have one car per family that stays in a garage a mile and a half down the road because there's just not a lot of need, especially in the city areas. But this is something we see time and time again. You know, a car's principal, it's kind of like the phone. The pr principal use case for a phone is to make calls, check email, probably Facebook and Instagram for a lot of people and buy a few things and stay in touch with people. Cars are the same way. The point of a car is to get from here to here, to get you and the people with you. And, 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 and you know, obviously with safety standards moving up, you know, you don't have to worry about the, the safety argument as much anymore. But you see this where where people go out and they'll spend, you know, between a couple, they'll have $100,000 worth of brand new cars sitting in the driveway that come along with, you know, anywhere from $1,500 to $2,000 worth of payments every single month. And those are talking about the big things. If you're not in a position to, to be saving enough for retirement, setting aside an emergency fund, you know, funding your kids college, doing those types of things, and you're driving around in brand new SUVs that cost 50,000 bucks, you know, that's, that's one of those other mistakes that people make on a regular basis. It doesn't mean you can't drive nice cars. It doesn't mean you won't ever be able to drive nice cars. It means that when you're in the wealth building or when you're in the get out of debt phase, these are the types of things, you know, driving a 10 year old used car is just fine and they're great. And, and if you haven't been driving a brand new Beamer for the last three years, it's not a hard thing to do. But you watch it time and time again where, where people's income is just sucked out by fancy cars just to get them back and forth to a job that they don't even really like in order to pay for their car and their house that is too big. 
So I, I look at this a little bit differently, but, but I can't disagree with what, you, what, what you've said. So I, I look at the opportunity cost of buying a nice car. Like most people, if you have a job, if you have income, like you can get a car loan right now. I mean, it's just, it's, it's super easy with rates low, credits flowing. So let's say you bought a $60,000 car, all right? You, you, you pay cash, you buy a nice new Audi for 60K. That, that hurts in and of itself to have that, that outflow. But what if instead of buying a new car for 60K, you took that 60 grand and invested it in a basket of ETFs over 10 years and got 6% a year. Well, all of a sudden that $60,000 car, I just punched this in, 107,000 and change. So that, that is a huge gap. You had negative 60,000 going out the door in return you got a car. You could have invested that 60,000 and turned it in to 107,000 over 10 years earning a reasonable 6% return, which is not delusional, which is, which is not aggressive on an assumption basis. So that, that's, that's where I get hung up. That's where I just can't pull the trigger. I mean, you need to drive a car, so you probably wouldn't be able to just put all 60 in, but it's, it's lifestyle choices over your entire life, right? So if every five years, which seems to be kind of the average time, five to seven years, you're buying another $60,000 car and you're trading in your last car and they're giving you seven to $10,000 for it, that, you know, let's say it's, it's, it's a five-year window you're talking about $50,000 to drive that car. So you're paying $10,000 just a year in order to drive that. And so if taking what you're talking about, if you took half of that and bought a nice used car and put the other half in it and did that repeatedly for 20, 30 years, it's not $107,000. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the impacts are large. Well, and the other X factor is I have three kids. Uh, my wife drives a minivan. I'm not ashamed to say it. And sometimes I drive that van and some of my friends give me crap, but my three kids destroy everything. Like we just took a, a road trip to central Oregon, which is like a six hour drive total there, there and back. The back seat of that van smelled like the gates of hell. When I unpacked the car, there was Cheetos, popcorn, spilled drinks, gum stuck to the carpet. I mean, I would snap. My blood pressure would go off the scale if I brought if I had a brand new Tahoe or something and that happened. So that's that's another reason. Kids screw up everything. So let's touch on one more that I kind of scribbled down here at the end. Um, I see a lot of people doing this when it comes to big things. And that's Christmas. We all know Christmas is coming every single year. And if you've heard us in other podcasts, you should have a monthly fund or something saving towards Christmas. Christmas is not an emergency. It doesn't spring up out of nowhere and all of a sudden you need to go spend thousands of dollars. You know it's coming every single year on December 25th. But that being said, I watch people constantly where they get caught up in the Christmas spirit and there's nothing and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's nice to get caught up in the Christmas spirit, but they get caught up in the spending spirit. You know, they drop off at the mall, wander through the stores, come out with bags and bags and bags of crap, ordering things online now. We talk about the one-touch Amazon or one-button Amazon ordering. And you end up, you know, especially people with kids sometimes, where it's, it's, there's $5,000 worth of crap underneath the, underneath the tree. And there's nothing wrong with that if you can afford it. But time and time again, I talk to people that 
in April are talking about just finally paying off their Christmas balance or they went to Macy's and opened up a Macy's card back when Macy's was relevant or a Toys R Us card, you know, opening up credit cards because they can't afford to buy the Christmas presents with the cash that they have. That's another one of those things that if it's left unchecked can get really ridiculous. And then that's the type of debt that follows you all the way through the next year, just making not only minimum payments, but just paying all that interest on things for something that, you know, kids are kids. They're going to enjoy whatever. They love Christmas. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars if you don't have thousands of dollars um, in order to make everybody happy over the Christmas time. Now let's pivot to what I think is the most important part of this podcast, this rant of sorts. And that is maximizing your future earning power. So all this other crap, like personal finance is important, obviously, budgeting is important, but it's, it's my belief that most people would be better served to focus on how they can maximize their earning power. And I've said this before, 2021 is the best time in history to make money. Like you can sit in your underwear all day in your mom's basement and find out a way to make money through social media, through YouTube, the power of the internet, the ease in which we're connected, how easily you could move currency across borders. It's, it's just a great time to be alive, to monetize your ideas. Eric, do you have any thoughts or tips for our listeners? I think that was a great way to say it. You know, we live in unprecedented times. It used to be a lot more manual, the process of, of making money. You know, even growing up as a teenager, you had to go get a job at a movie theater or a grocery store or have a family connection. You know, nowadays you've got people, my kids watch Dan TDM on YouTube all the time and he plays Roblox and, and Minecraft and Fortnite and the guy makes tens of millions of dollars a year and he's probably 25 years old. You know, it doesn't mean that that's the, that everybody can do that, but that ample, there's just ample opportunity out there to increase your earning potential at this time, especially right now where you've got coming out of COVID where employees are clamoring over each other, trying to find people to work for them. A lot of them are offering remote work. A lot of them are offering, you know, part-time with benefits. I mean, there's just, there's a, there's no excuse in modern times for an educated person to not be able to expand their earning capacity. Well, in, in what you were talking about at the start of your comments is kind of the industrial age playbook, right? Trading your time for money. Traditional nine to five, you go to work, punch the clock, eat your cheese sandwich at your desk and you go home. Uh, and, and, that's, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's certainly a fine way to make a living. But what we're talking about is there's there's so many opportunities now to get away from that antiquated playbook and leverage your time, meaning not trading your time for money, leveraging your time to create income or money when you're sleeping. And that could be, that could be making money through creating software or creating content that lives online. And I always say content's great because it never takes a vacation, it never calls in sick. Uh, I've I've wrote a blog every week for the last five years, and it's amazing when I when I pick my head up and look back at that because it seems like a daunting task and a lot of work, but but if you just set up a, a system and have a process for creating content, it can be a magical thing. Uh, and then the last thing is passive investments, so dividend payments from stocks, coupon payments from bonds, 
rental income from from a real estate investment. Th these are all things that work for you and you don't have to do anything once they're in place. I'm a firm believer that financial freedom comes sometime around the point when your money makes more money than you can, right? So you talked about trading your time for money and that's, that's the standard process, right? You get a job, you're employed, your time is finite, the employer's time is finite, the only thing we can't buy more of, you know, it doesn't matter, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, they can do whatever they want. Well, Elon might solve this in the next handful of years, who knows, but you can't buy more time. And so as long as you're always trading that limited time and resource your whole career for a paycheck, you're never, I mean, you can get ahead, but it's, it's much more difficult versus investing you know, buying bonds, doing those things that you're talking about where your money is now its own little business that is pumping more money out for you. And speaking of, you know, the traditional work or traditional job path, so think of it as climbing the corporate ladder as we usually call it, you know, that there's nothing wrong with that, but it should be a target. So if you're in a career and you want to increase your earning capacity, you need to go find a mentor, learn something new, figure out how to work your way up that process. You know, one of the things also, if you're starting in a new job, and I, I harp on this with friends and family, whenever they're whenever they're moving to a new career or, or a new company, salary negotiations. If you're in that standard corporate ladder progression, your first salary negotiation is going to serve as the baseline for most of your increases as you go through that company. So don't just get all excited because you got a job opportunity or a job offer. Make sure you squeeze that juice as hard as you can because that's going to be the baseline for the rest of your progression. Yeah, and, and I don't want to sound like I'm saying everyone is cut out to be an entrepreneur and they should quit their job and you can't make money climbing the corporate ladder. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But certainly plan the next phase of your career. Think, think five moves ahead. Be curious, ask questions, ask your boss, what would it take to get a promotion? You know, if there's someone out there that you admire that is in the position that you want to be, ask them questions, schedule lunch with them, find out what they're doing right. I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer in reading, being curious, being genuine, and, and cut people out of your life that are toxic or that are holding you back. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to do it, whether you start your own business, whether you're an entrepreneur within the corporate world, that's called an entrepreneur, or you're, you're just a regular corporate person, find out what the next level is and align your behaviors and habits to achieve that next level. And don't be shy about getting wealthy. I know in modern times, it's very in vogue to hate on rich people. Now, I think for the most part, we're referring to the mega rich in that, but but it, it's very, it, it's a weird culture in the United States because we vilify the rich, but yet we're fascinated by them. It's kind of like celebrities or celebrities in their own right. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to build wealth and get rich. Don't be afraid to do it. And I have a comment on that. And I think there's some, there's some hypocrisy, you know, around that. I have several people in my network that, um, don't like wealthy people. Uh, they they think it's it's bad to be rich. It's bad to be wealthy. On the flip side of that, these same people went to college, and I would just ask them, well, why did you go to college? 
And when you strip away all the bullshit, the reason why people go to college, if they're being honest, is to make more money. Like we all want a better life for ourselves. I'm not saying someone needs a trillion dollars, but that's not that person's job that made, that's not that person's problem that made a million dollars. It's the tax code's problem. All these people that are super wealthy are just playing the game that's outlined in front of them. Like if you want to change the inequality, and I'm talking about the mega, mega, mega wealthy, change the tax code. It's simple. But know that these people are armed with the brightest CPAs, the brightest attorneys to skirt the rules. You know, that's why I chuckle when they say the corporate tax rate is going up. It's like, well, there's, there's a thousand different ways around that. But the bottom line is money is not evil, wealthy are not evil, and, 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 and we all in some indirect or direct way are doing more to maximize our wealth. So in summation, the moral of the story here is finding the balance. Don't sweat the small things. Focus on the big things. And, and don't go overboard, right? So there, there's, a, there's a movement that most people have heard of now. It's called FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's something I've been following for over a decade uh, before it really became a mainstream phenomenon. And the, the premise is, you know, just live at the bottom of the barrel as, as much as you can, save 70 to 80% of every dollar that you make, and then get out of, you know, and then you can retire in your 30s. And, and for some people, that might be the goal, right? And for, but for a lot of people, it's because they hate their job and they're trying to get out of it and so they want to do it. You know, if, if, that, if that fits you, then fine. I, I call it a little extreme. I think you got to live a little bit. But then on the other end of the cycle, you've got people, as you like to put it all the time, Nick, people just torching money. And so, you know, there's a balance in between. And that's what we mean. You know, if you want to drink your Starbucks, if you don't want to cut coupons, if you still want to have a boat and you want to live in a house that isn't, you know, 62 degrees in the wintertime, do it. Just make sure that you're doing it in a house you can afford, not driving overly expensive cars that are outside of your range and buying the latest iPhone every six months when it comes out because now they have a dancing emoji instead of a static emoji. Yeah, and I would just add to that, really focus on maximizing your your earning power. I mean, human capital, your future earning power, especially if you're a young person, that is by far your biggest asset. So invest time, invest money, read books, get curious, find a mentor. Basically, it's all hands on deck to maximize your biggest asset, your future earning power. So there you have it. I'm Eric. He's Nick. For more information, check us out at propersense.com.